Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 17. Fire! Fire! Hey, welcome back. It's been a, about two and a half weeks since my last show. I'm trying to keep on track. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in, as I seem to usually do. First off, I'm going to have a couple news items. I'm trying to keep track of, of things I hear that might be new or interesting and see if I can have a news section going. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of solitaire news, really, at least not lately. We'll, we'll see how this goes. First up, Victory Point Games just announced, just as in about two weeks ago, the release of Disaster on Kenchenjunga, which is a third game by Tom Decker on the Disaster in the Himalayas series. The first was Disaster in Everest, second was Disaster in K2, and this one tackles the third highest peak, which is Kanchenjunga. It's a very hard to pronounce word. I think it's especially harder to spell. This one looks neat because there's spies in it. Okay, next up is the Lord of the Rings living card game. About a week ago, Fantasy Flight announced they are doing another big box expansion, which is The Hobbit. I think the subtitle is There and Back Again, or A Hobbit's Tale, or something like that. But this one has to do with the story told in The Hobbit, and I, from what I can tell, you're following that adventure. You know, I was starting to convince myself that I'm going to swear off the Lord of the Rings expansions after this current cycle that's going on finishes, just because it's a lot of money. Boy, I'm really excited about the idea of The Hobbit. It's always been one of my favorite books, so it's going to be hard to ignore that one. We'll see what happens, and I think there's going to be a second one they said after that. Okay, finally, the third piece of news is last week I started a new guild for the podcaster for Solitaire Gaming in general on BGG. It's called the One Player Guild. So if you're interested in Solitaire Games, I guess you are since you're listening to this, go check out the guild, join up. I don't really have any idea what I'm going to do with it right now other than just, I, I don't know. If anybody has any decent ideas what to do with it, any half-decent ideas, just go for it. Feel free to post anything you want, make any comments, or edit the description, etc., etc. It'd be nice if the if the guild ended up being useful for some so for anybody looking for more information about solitary gaming. Do check it out. There've been a couple posts in there where people commented or asked questions. I will go ahead and include the uh, link in the show notes. Related to that, I've been posting show notes on Board Game Geek. I started a geek list. And every episode I post, the the new episode on there is a, a new item. I mention stuff on it. That's another good place if you want to see what's going on to to go look. Anyway, next up, I was uh, thinking about randomness and just thinking about how it applies to solitaire games. Okay. I was thinking about randomness in general and how it applies to solitaire games. I think in solitaire games, randomness is more important than a multiplayer game because oftentimes that's the only way to to make the game variable for a player when you have multi- multiple players in a game the interaction between the two players or three or more players will, will drive the game a lot and make the game different from play to play but in a solitaire game you need something else to, to manage that otherwise it's going to be the same thing over and over and it becomes a tedious puzzle so there's quite a few different ways randomness is dealt with I've gone through and I came up with a list of all the ones I could think of so probably the first and most common Randomizer is dice. Then there's chip pulls, or chits, which you just draw from a box or a bag or whatever. There are cards, 
There's spinners, which you don't see much anymore. Electronics, which are also pretty uncommon. You can drop something. And then there's also shuffling and remixing to create randomness. So all these randomizers all work a little bit differently generally, but tend to do the same thing, which is give you an unpredicted result. Depending on what you're using, you could get different amounts of randomness. It could be more or less predictable. It could be easy to do or it could be kind of tedious. And it could affect the range of options you have or, or re possible results. So as I said, the first one was dice. That's pretty simple, straightforward. You pick up a die and you roll it. Maybe you pick up multiple dice. The I think the number of dice you use, the more random the result will be. If you have one six-sided die and you roll it, you're going to get equal chances of getting six different results. If you roll two dice, you then get a bell curve. The uh, If you get two dice and add them together, I should say. You tend to get seven shows up a lot more often. Two and twelve are pretty uncommon. So using that tends to give you a pretty standard result with some unusual outcomes occasionally. There's a lot of statistics information you could look at if you want to know more about that. If you add three dies or four dies, again, the bell curve just becomes sharper and the numbers in the middle are going to be that much more common. You could affect the, the results by the kind of die you use. It could be D6, D8, D20. The nice thing about dice is that they're easy to roll. And honestly, they're kind of fun to roll. But they're, they're fun and fast to use. So you just see those in games a lot of the time. Next up is chits, which are probably more common in war games, but not strictly. Chits are generally little tiny counters, but they could just as easily be something else, uh, large tokens from a Euro game or anything else. And the idea is you have a bunch of them in a cup or in a bag or something, and you pull one out, and that tells you the result. It has a lot of variability, since you could have, say, a bag with 100 different chits, and if they're all different, you got got 100 possible results. They work nice. In some cases, after you draw it, you might put it somewhere on the board as a marker to remind you of what's going on, that sort of thing. And, and so they're pretty handy. They're a little bit more cumbersome than just using dice, but not by much. Of course, the problem with them, if you if you lose one, you're sort of out of luck. It's easier to replace a regular D6 than it is a custom counter from some random obscure game. Okay, Next up is cards which are really not necessarily that different from chits. You, uh, let's say you have a deck of 52 cards, you just shuffle it, and now you got 52 random items that you're going to draw in order. And they're stacked, they're easy to go with. Go, I'm sorry, they're easy to go through. They're kind of big, so a card could have a lot of information on it. It's really not that different from having 52 chits in a cup or a bag if you're drawing them one at a time. The big difference is that with the cards, the order is predetermined. With the chits, it's... Not determined until the moment you pull it out of the out of the bag. That can make a difference if the game gives you an opportunity to look at the next five cards coming up or something like that. If you're going to end up using the entire deck during the game, and this applies to chits and cards, and I think most things will apply to both of them. If you go th once you go through the entire, if you I'm sorry, if you're going through the entire deck, as you're getting to the end, you pretty much know what's coming up if if you play the game enough or if you know what cards are in there. So you could start predicting what might happen. Not necessarily when, but you know, for example, if you have a 52 card deck and you've got three cards left, if you haven't drawn the Ace of Hearts yet, you know it's coming up soon. You can't do that with dice because it's totally random every time. 
one way to deal with that is the last way to randomize that I mentioned, which is actually reshuffling. Uh, let's say if you have a card in the middle of the deck, every time you draw that card, you're forced to reshuffle. What this does is it guarantees that you won't know what card you're going to get any time. And there's no guarantee you're going to get every card, so you can't really count or predict what's coming up so well. It could make the game more tedious if you end up having to shuffle a lot or remix the uh, counters. It, 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 it tends to be easier with counters, as they're small, and it's easier to just throw them in the bag and shake it up than it is to, to shuffle a deck of cards. Granted, not much easier, but if you're doing this a lot in the game, like say in uh, Onirum, it does get annoying to shuffle, and probably more so than to to throw counters in the bag and just shake it up again. Okay, so next up is the spinner. Yeah, I don't think I've played a... Well, other than kids' games, I haven't played a game with spinner in... Well, ever, maybe. When I've played shoots and ladders with my kid, there's a spinner in there, and that's about it. Again, that's completely random, like a die. The problem with the spinner is you're going to end up... Uh, if it gets warped or anything, it doesn't work so well anymore. And a lot of flicking, after all, starts to gets make your fingertip a little sore. So yeah, you don't see these too often, unless it's some gimmicky or maybe even a cheap game, honestly. The interesting thing about a spinner is, if you do have one, you can make interesting results. For example, you could have four possible results, one, two, three, and four. Depending on the size you make each uh, number on the spinner, it may be more or less likely to show up. So you can make some really crazy custom probabilities that way. So you could probably accomplish more or less the same thing with the, uh, say, a percentile dice. Next is electronics. There's some games that do that. It tends to be gimmicky and, and go in waves, I think. The electronics are nice because you make any kind of randomness that you want to program into it. It also can have hidden information and track that for you so the player can... so there could be information that the player doesn't know. Really, the sky's the limit when it comes to electronics. Anything the programmer can come up with, you could uh, simulate with electronics or just about anything. I'm sure there's some things that just don't work well. And they say that electronics are not truly random because there's always a sequence that's going to be repeated. Granted, that sequence might be a, a few million uh, numbers long, so I, the average person will not notice it's repeating. And finally, dropping something could create randomness. In the game I'm going to talk about today, you drop a counter on the board, and where it lands is where the fire starts. So that's one way to do randomness. The only problem with that is that it could be easy to manipulate. You could uh, aim your counter. Maybe that's not a problem. Maybe it could be used strategically as part of the game. But you do have some control where to land, and sometimes, at least in the game that I've been playing, Smoke Jumpers, Sometimes it kind of just drops straight down. Sometimes it flutters around a little bit and lands somewhere unexpected. Most of the time it just goes straight down, and so it's not terribly exciting. Also, I think the better you get at dropping something, the less random it's going to get, and you could strategize more by dropping it in a certain way or at a certain position on your board. So again, why randomness? The uh, it It could do two things, I think. One, it could add replayability to the game. Depending on how the game mechanics work and how the randomness is implemented, it could add a lot of replayability or just a little. But since the game has some level of randomness, you don't know what to expect from one game to the next, and two games won't play out exactly the same, or at least should be highly unlikely. And secondly, it could add tension. 
since you don't know the result you're about to get, and say you're going to go into a fight with somebody, you may or may not win. You don't know. It's all up to the results of that die roll or card draw or whatever you might be using. So sometimes it, ha it adds tension. It's got to be handled carefully because instead of tension, sometimes you just get annoyed at bad die results, especially if it happens a lot. If it happens a lot in a single game, you could just find yourself getting annoyed at that randomness that might have started off as tension, but as, like I said, it's just annoying now. Fine, I guess the randomness in the game could come in at the beginning, the middle, at the end. You could, you know, some games have random setups. Some have fixed setup with random events going on or combat is random. It, there's really many, many ways it could be implemented. I think the thing to keep in mind is when you're aware how the randomness works and what effects it has on the results, it might impact the way you play the game and might give you some insight into the kind of mechanics and randomness you do like in a game, which might make you, uh, it might allow you to make better choices when you're buying a game in the future. So it's something to think about. Okay, that's it for my mini randomness segment. Next up is uh, my review of Smoke Jumpers. So today's game is Smoke Jumpers. It is a game designed by Kerry Anderson and originally published in 1996. This game has gone through a couple different editions. It was originally published by micro, the Micro Game Design Group, and that version was a desktop published game. It was all printed on paper, and you had to mount the counters yourself and all that. The next edition was published by Fury Dragon Productions in part of their Counter-Strike mini-game series. These originally came in a tin, a nice little tin that's about about 5 by 7 All the components fit in there. The new version had a lot of color and looked nicely produced. Fury, Dra Fury Dragon has republished the game in a updated cardboard box version, which is, I think, slightly bigger, more or less the same 5 by 7 size. The newer versions also have thicker counters than the previous uh, tin, tin box edition. I think the game is currently out of print, but there are still copies available. I may be wrong, and it might be in print, but there are still copies available. They're hard to find, but you can still get them directly from Fury Dragon from their website. I actually, I contacted the publishers just to verify that it was still around. They said it is, and they also mentioned they have a a bundle, a sale coming up, or maybe going on right now, we could get four games for $65, which includes shipping. So that, uh, it might be one way to get it. I think this is the only solid, great, solitaire game they have on the site. All the other games, at least in this series, are war games. And as a matter of fact, Smoke Jumpers is considered a war game, uh, at least by the designer. He's got an interesting explanation in the in the game notes about why it should be thought of as a war game. So the version I own is the tin box edition, so that's what I'm going to talk about. This edition brings a number of charts, brings a couple dies, a color, a nice glossy color rulebook, four maps that are folded and they're about eight and a half by eleven ish. I'm not sure exactly, and I'd say about a hundred to two hundred counters. I'm not sure exactly. Two hundred plus counters. Unfortunately, the counters are pretty thin and they're hard to work with, but they are manageable. And as I said, the newer edition does have thicker counters. So this is a game about firefighting in the forest. 
So there's two ways to play the game. It could be played in a campaign mode in which you're you're in charge of firefighters, which will have to deal with a whole season of firefighting. And it'll compo be composed of a number of scenarios. And generally each scenario is one day in which you have to deal with a fire. The second way to play is just to play a single standalone scenario and you're fighting fires for one day. I'm going to go ahead and talk about that and just assume that the campaign is the same thing. The only difference is in the campaign, you have a fixed budget for the entire season and you decide how you spend it throughout the season. When you do the scenario, you have all your money up front and that you have all that money available for that scenario. So you may as well just use it all unless you're, say, trying to play to see how efficiently you could uh, fight fires and not spend money. Of course, if a house burns on, you're going to be in trouble for that. You should have spent the money. Everybody's going to hate you for it. So spend the money. Anyway, the, the way the game works is if you're going to play a scenario, you select your map and you select the scenario. There's different types of scenarios which generally have to do with the type of weather. It could be a rainy day, a storm. It could just be windy and dry. There's a total of six different scenarios. You go ahead and pick one. It tells you how much money you have to start with and the weather conditions. Then you could go ahead and spend any money you want up front to, to buy your firefighters that you could place on the board and some of the other things like, let's see, you got firefighters, you got vehicle, like water tankers, you've got a tractor they could use to build fire lines, and there's also a helicopter and I think one or two different airplanes, like the kind that could come by and drop water. The airplanes are obviously a lot more expensive than, say, men on the ground. But they, they tend to work pretty well to create a, a fire line. Anyway, so you've picked your scenario and picked the map, spent any budget you want up front, and then you just go ahead and start playing turn by turn. Each turn, you're going to adjust the time and weather if necessary. And there's some random die rolls here to see how the weather changes. Plus, as the day goes by, the humidity goes up and down, which also affects how the fire can spread. Then the second phase is fire growth. Basically, depending on which direction the wind is blowing the and how strong it's blowing and humidity, the fire can spread you know, in the direction the wind's blowing. And it could spread as little as one... Well, okay, you don't actually... The spread, the rate the fire spreads is not number of hexes, but number of terrain costs. And I think that can range from as little as one or two up to, I think I had 19 the last time I fought a fire. And I lost that game. There's just really strong winds going on. When the fire spreads, there's different types of trees. And the, the rate of spread varies based on the type of trees that that area is mainly composed of. The, I should say it's a hex encounter game. So the each hex is a different train. And that's what you'll determine, use to determine how fast the fire spreads. I kind of feel like I'm sort of rambling here today. I hope this is going okay. But uh, I'll keep going anyway. So you spread your fire in the direction of the wind, as I said. And then any spaces that already had fire to begin to turn, turn from a fire to a smoldering space. Where the all the firewood has basically burnt out, all the kindling is burnt out, and the space is now just smoldering and kind of died out. But if wind blows, turns in a different direction, that can now spread and to start new fire in a new direction. So those kind of stay there. This part of the game can be pretty tedious. If the fire starts to get pretty big and you got 20 or 30 counters on the board or on the map, every time the, this phase comes up, you got to get a whole bunch of counters off and 
put him back on. It's a paper map and they're really thin counters. It's, it's a little bit hard to do. From what I've seen, usually if the fire is getting that big, you're probably going to lose anyways pretty soon. So it's not a big deal. At least that's true for me. Anyway, after the fire growth comes uh, the phase where you could move your firefighters and fight. Anybody that's already on the board could move around. Each firefighter and vehicle has a movement rate, which you're allowed to move that number of X's every turn. I'm sorry, it's not movement rate, it's action points. You can use those one action point per space you want to move. Or you could use those action points to build uh, fire lines. They could be made from water or dirt, depending on what's available. Generally, it'll be dirt if you're using firefighters. Placing fire lines is the main way you fight the fire. Every point of fire line that you place in a space basically raises the cost of moving into that space. If the cost gets high enough to move into space, the fire is just not going to be able to spread there, and you contain the fire. Once the fire is contained and it's gone from actively burning to smoldering, your firefighters can then throw a line into that basically to turn off the fire in that space. So that's how the game works. You, well, there's a fourth phase. I'm going to tell you about that. After you've done all the moving, moving and firefighting and basically taking all your actions, you can then deploy any units that are not currently on the map or that you haven't bought yet. You could go ahead and spend more money if you have it to buy more units. Or if you've got units that you bought already but you haven't put on there for whatever reason, you can go ahead and deploy them following normal movement restrictions. Uh, once you've gone through those four phases, which was uh, deal with the weather and advance a clock, the fire growth, move and fight the fire with your firefighters, and then deploy any new uh, units, you just repeat that and keep going until either you've uh, stopped the fire or it's burnt out of control and you lose. If I remember right, you could also lose if a house catches fire. There's A couple of the maps have houses that people that live in cabins in the woods or something like that. If a house catches fire, I believe you also lose the game right away. As I started to say, a lot of the game is putting out fire lines, or I should say a lot of the strategy... Okay. So as I started to say before, a lot of the strategy is placing fire lines to stop the fire from advancing beyond where it's currently at, and then having your firefighters go into the area that's now contained and putting the, the smoldering fires out. It tends, at least at first, it tends to be harder than it sounds. You kind of have to gauge how far away you want to put the fire line. I tend to want to put the fire line in close enough so that very little bit of the woods burn. But if you get too close, be, if you try to build your line too close before you finish building it, your, the fire has already gone beyond that limit. And now you find that what you've done hasn't done any good, and you got to back out and try and build another line even farther out. Actually, the last time I played, that's what got me. I was just way too too close to the fire while I was building my line. So that's basically the game. It plays pretty quick. I think a game lasts about 30 to 40 minutes depending on how well you're doing it and how fast the fire is growing and how often you're going to be having to flip over and add counters. It's neat to watch the way the fire grows and then watch as it hits your fire lines and how it gets slowed down. It's neat seeing that dynamic happen. I don't really know how accurate that is from what I've read, that's generally how firefighting is done, so that's pretty neat. When I talked about Ferudio a couple episodes ago, that game tend to be a pretty abstract firefighting game, where you just kind of place a unit on a space to... Oh. When I talked about Ferudio a few episodes of the game, 
I'm in trouble today. When I talked about Feudio a few episodes ago, that game tends to be more abstract. This game is more realistic. It definitely feels a lot more like a war game. There's also some optional rules you could add to make the game more realistic. It's a neat little game. Like I said, I really like it. I enjoy it because it plays fast and because it feels realistic. I like the production value of the game. The tin's really nice and the artwork on the cover I think is really cool. The version I have, the uh, MSRP listed on the box is $19.95. I'm not sure what how much the new version cost. I think it's probably about the same. It might even be cheaper potentially, I guess, since it's not tin. But don't take my word for that. I'm probably wrong. One other thing I noticed about my edition is because the tin has rounded corners, a lot of the charts in the tin are starting to get their, their corners bent just because it's kind of a tight fit in that tin. I'm going to go ahead and take a corner rounder. I have a corner rounder rounder that I bought at the uh, craft store. I'm going to take that and just make the corners round. It'll fit a lot better and it'll stop. It'll keep them from getting crushed. If you've got a tin edition, if that's what you end up getting, you might want to consider doing that just so that they don't get all crumpled up. Oh, that's it. Hope you enjoyed the show. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you would like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected by a Creative Commons license. The song and copyright information can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published in the Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.